This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. And as I said on Thursday's pod, this weekend's fix just didn't look too interesting. And so it didn't prove. Saturday saw the most Premier League goals on a single day. 41 in total across the weekend with a game still to go. Arsenal back in the race. Alisson choosing the wrong time to turn into a hologram. Newcastle and Luton play out a four-all classic. Wolves hit four themselves at hapless £1 billion Chelsea. Four for Brighton against Palace. Surely that's enough for Roy now. Man United look quite good. Their kids all sitting on the advertising board having a nice time. Villa hit five. Is the mask slipping from Big Ange? And there's a late comeback for Burnley. All that plus Gareth Southgate's Jordan Henderson obsession. A non-league clarification. A new operation for a pod listener along your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi Max. Hello Jacob Steinberg. Hi Max. And hello Troy Townsend, Lord Sir Troy Townsend Senior Senior. We're honoured. <laughs> Hi Max. I'm honoured, not you're honoured. This, this is my first time to see Troy since he got his MBE. Oh. He, he got, it's quite impressive. I, I, congratulations, Troy. Uh, Thank you very not, much. Not actually having a forelock, but tugging it anyway. <laughs> Thank you. So, look, the highest scoring round of fixtures ever is 44, and you've got Brentford City tonight with, you know, City can score quite a lot of goals. Ivan Tony's back. And as I said, Barry, the fixtures didn't look too interesting, and I was completely wrong. A brilliant weekend of football. It was spectacular. I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure City will score a hatful tonight because we have to remember Brentford did beat them home and away last season, the only team to do so. I have a feeling that won't happen tonight, but you, you never know. Um, let's start the Emirates then. Arsenal 3, Liverpool 1. Brian says, how many times have Arsenal won the league this season? Look, we'll get on to the celebration piece later. City Guna says, which of Arsenal's 3.47 XG was your favourite and which of Liverpool's 0.1 was your favourite. We should probably start, Jacob, with the key goal. I mean, Martinelli, who was great, but I was just so delighted to see some real Sunday league defending in the best league in the world. Yeah, it's been interesting with Liverpool this season because they look like at times like they're about to go on this remorseless charge and it's going to end with four trophies for Klopp. And then there are other times where you feel like they're kind of slightly living on the edge. I mean, even that game against Chelsea last week, they obviously could have scored about six or seven. Darwin hitting the woodwork four times. And yet they conceivably could have conceded two penalties as well. And that second one, potentially making it 3-2 and giving everything a different kind of feel. So you kind of feel at times, are they more vulnerable than than they may be making it look with the results that they've been putting together? And then yesterday it comes through with Arsenal playing the tactics perfectly, getting through on the counter-attack over and over again and just sort of spreading uncertainty and chaos with with Martinelli, which um, which he's been able to do against Liverpool quite a few times. Um, and it ends and culminates in that horrendous mix-up for the second goal. You know, Van Dijk's obviously been a fantastic player, still is a fantastic player, but if, if there is that question mark, it's probably since the injury, it's just at times, if you can get running at him, maybe there'll be a a mistake that will come. Actually, you know, the one against against Chelsea, who was um, lucky not to concede well, t- two, two penalties. Uh, he was done on the Nkunku goal as well. So maybe there's just a little bit of vulnerability there that might hurt them. Obviously, the goalkeeper coming out doesn't really 
help it as well. And uh, yeah, and ends in ends in the back of the net. Yeah, it's quite an interesting choice, isn't it? That Martinelli is is better against the better teams because they attack as well, and and so he has that space in behind. So it's sort of that difficult. Are you are you more sensible, even if you are as good as Liverpool, to to play it slightly differently? I don't know. It was interesting yesterday because obviously Liverpool had lost, you know, young Connor Bradley and, you know, those horrible circumstances. And it may have been a better, it would probably have been a better matchup against Connor Bradley, whose pace and defensive awareness would have got him back in certain circumstances, I think. And Trent didn't look fit for me yesterday. He didn't impact on the game, you know, as he trotted off after being taken off after about 55 minutes. You could almost see that within him. He just didn't look right. And Martinelli exposed, you know, like Jacob said, it was great to see him back in form. I think from the first minute he got joy. So he thought, yeah, this could be my day today. And he exploited them as as well as what we've seen for a very, very long time in Martinelli. So I'm not one that normally praises Arteta, but he, he got his tactics absolutely spot on for this one. You know, they could have gone ahead a lot earlier, couldn't they, with that Saka missed header. But they've done so well. And even the recovery from the goal. I mean, you look at Saliba and you look at Van Dijk, both of them are very good and very confident in the way that they, their ability to deal with like little threats, certain situations. And both of them got caught out yesterday and it could have been a slightly different game. Liverpool started the second half really well, but then Arsenal, you know, again, grabbed back the kind of the, the game by the neck and um, deserved their victory. What did you make of it, Baz? I thought Kai Havertz had a good game. I thought Jorginho, who's sort of been quite on the, on the fringes, was really impressive as well. Yeah, um... Look, it's Liverpool's first defeat in 16 league games, only their second loss of the season, so no need to panic. They were uncharacteristically poor, but I think they were uncharacteristically poor because Arsenal made them look uncharacteristically poor. Arsenal sort of out-Liverpooled them in insofar as they were pre- in, in terms of their pressing. Odegaard and Havertz were sort of the first line of rabid dogs hunting down Liverpool players and then Jorginho and Rice behind them I thought were just vastly, vastly superior to, to Gravenberg and um, Curtis Jones. Yeah, I didn't think they played particularly well at all. I think, as Troy said, Trent Alexander-Arnold looked probably understandably rusty after it was a month, five or six weeks out and um they miss Sabazlai and obviously Mo Salah is, is, is a big loss for them. So maybe that's catching up with them. While it's a very good win for Arsenal, and you could argue a good win for City as well, because I think they'd be more worried about Liverpool than they are Arsenal, I would be still slightly worried about the fact that Arsenal, despite being so superior, had to rely on a couple of handouts to get goals. And they still look a bit toothless. And I, I would be concerned about that. But good for the title race, Jacob. Yeah, I, I think it probably favours Manchester City. Well, if they go and win tonight, then they're obviously two points off, game in hand. And having done that, when people have been saying, oh, Manchester City, they're not, they're not the same as last season. They're more vulnerable, defensively not as good. Erling Haaland, he's not there. How are they going to cope without him? And then you come out at the end of it and they're just right there. And... It feels like we've been here before and it just feels like with De Bruyne 
coming back and just looking exceptional immediately and he's got a new haircut and everything that's very nice and you know with Haaland's come back as well it just feels like the others are going to have to be so perfect to to hold them off um I'm not sure as Barry says if if Arsenal have the firepower to do that still feels like there'll be games where they get frustrated and they don't get the space maybe that Liverpool gave them yesterday and we've seen that's been a problem for them and again with with Liverpool I back them more than Arsenal but I'm still not sure whether they have enough to hold off that that Manchester City um and I, I think ultimately so much will come down to the to the game at Anfield though it's interesting because City under Pep they haven't been in a three-way title race so uh, you know the, the previous two that, that they've been in has been just them and Liverpool winning every single week, and obviously City winning it by a point or goal difference. This time, obviously, they've got that added uncertainty of Arsenal being there as well, and so it adds a little bit more jeopardy, and it maybe creates a little bit more uncertainty just for them that that, that you know there's not just Liverpool that they have to think about and be perfect against. Um, that there's another one there as well. Much has been made of Arsenal's sort of lack of a clinical finisher and I wonder if if you look at Villa and Ollie Watkins and the way he's explained that how much Unai Emery telling him not to stray into wide areas just play within the width of the penalty area those two lines whether you're in the penalty area or outside it he says that's you know really helped his game and and his numbers speak for themselves and I just wonder if Arsenal tried that with Gabriel Jesus. I know he didn't play yesterday, but just when he is available, would would that help his game, or would it and help him score more goals, or would it detract from Arsenal's overall game the fact that he's not you know out by the corner flag or you know just straying running all over the place? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it does bring other people into play. I always think it's strange when they say that to you know as a centre forward, and obviously it's a different game, but. I'd just be so, I'd be like, am I, oh, damn, I've run into the wrong bit again. It's sort of like playing shipwreck, you know, when you're a kid, isn't it? Like suddenly like the sharks get you if you run outside of those lines. Um, but it's a good question. We should get Jesus to try it for a couple of games. Yeah, Jacob. When, when Liverpool won the league in 2019-20, the only players who got, I think, double figures or were sort of scoring all the time were Salah and Mane. And they scored a lot from wide positions and Roberto Firmino didn't score that much so I think he got nine so I don't think he hit double figures in the league and so it's a little bit similar with Arsenal in that the two guys who you really want to be scoring are Martinelli and Saka Jesus may be performing a similar kind of function in the selflessness that Firmino produced and there's so much other good parts of his game and which is probably why he's given that slack of not being a finisher the problem is that so this season, Saka and Martinelli haven't produced the kind of numbers that Salah and Mane were three, four years ago. And it's probably because Salah and Mane were 26, 27 at the time, um, experienced and had won the Champions League, whereas these two are kids. And there's just not been the same kind of output across the across the board. So I don't know if it matters not having the number nine who's finishing all the time, but if he's doing his job, that the manager wants him to do, but the rest of them aren't producing, then you've got the problem. And last season, it was last season it wasn't an issue. That that wasn't the issue um, for, for Arsenal. It was the lack of control in those big games. Did anyone think that the red card, second yellow uh, for Konate was a little bit contentious, or because then there was a couple more straight after that? Van Dijk in the corner, 
defensive corner and then the Gabriel holding back Nunez. And I think that would have been his second yellow as well. Um, and I, I just wonder about this consistency of whether, uh, again, a referee has gone, look, I'm going to give you a red, but I'm going to ignore, ignore the same things afterwards. Um, is it any impact at all? Or I just looked at it and I just thought, obviously, I, I just thought it was the same challenge from Gabriel on, on right on the halfway line on Nunez. And whether it had done anything or not, I don't know. But just for the consistency of of the game. Well, I, I, I would... I wouldn't have any problem with the Canate red card, but yeah, you might have a point. Actually, I hadn't, I didn't realise Gabriel was on a yellow, so I'd... I'm sure he was. Stephen says, just watched Arsenal Liverpool, and while it probably shouldn't bother me, I found the sight of Arteta constantly outside his technical area surprisingly annoying. There was no punishment from the officials, which begs the question: What's the point of having a technical area in the first place? I'm sure Barry will advise me to get a life and stop being irritated by pointless stuff, which in turn might help which in turn might help explain why I have lots of grey hairs and he has none. Um, and oh, I, says, I mean, I spend my entire life being irritated by bodily pointless <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Fill your boots, mate. Yeah. Um, it's not something that bothers me, but yeah, yeah. If, if if the technical area is there, maybe they just should put an electric fence around it or a force field or something. I, d- I don't know. That is not one of the more unimportant things in life that bothers me but there are plenty rest assured yeah well apparently um everyone sent us the, the rules about the technical area it's marked by a white line varying in size but it's always one meter on either side of the designated seating area for the players you know the dugout so he suggested that arsenal would just extend that designated seating area to the entire stadium and so that was the whole stadium was a dugout and there Arteta can go where he wants but uh, Conor McNamara was doing the international comms and he said when Arteta did that run and celebration he went oh you'll see these images again and again of Arteta you know this will be an iconic moment I'm like he does this every time Arsenal score a goal I don't think this doesn't feel iconic to me anyway well done they they can celebrate they they won, and it's important. Uh, Newcastle 4, Luton 4. James says, what if Michelangelo's David is actually Rob Edwards? I don't know if you were there, Troy, but what a what a game. I, w- I was there, yeah, up in the, the mountains. Could just about see some dots on the pitch, but, yeah, it was, it was an incredible game. You know, one thing about this Luton team now that is growing more and more and more is that they've got no fear. No fear at home, definitely at Kenilworth Road, as proved with their midweek win against Brighton. But away from home now, they are... When when we first started to go and watch and, and you know, they were containing for 60 minutes and they were making sure that they were still in games and then they were coming good for the last half an hour. Their approach to this game was get at Newcastle as much as they could, exploit them in certain areas. Dan Byrne was, had a runaround from Obene and then, you know, hope that... Things will happen for them. Ross Barkley, again, this is getting repetitive, dictated play from the middle of the park. So while Gareth is out watching Jordan Henderson in in, in Holland, uh, maybe should be watching a little bit closer to home because his performances week in, week out now, taking on the best midfielders that there are, have been outstanding, outstanding. Scored a, a great goal, contributed to some some really good, good football. And this is not to say take away from Newcastle, who were also excellent. Um, they were affected by losing Anthony Gordon at half-time, who had a really good first half and and caused Osho some real, real problems, um, including the the making of the second goal. But it was just it was just an outstanding game. And I think the referee was enjoying it because he'd added 11 minutes on at the end and he was happy to keep running around. So 
Um, you know, without going into the detail of the goals at the moment, it was an outstanding football match. Yeah, it's interesting you say outstanding so many times. Uh, Tom noted <laughs> that Jermaine Genus. Tom noted that Jermaine Genus's analysis of Ross Barley on Match of the Day. He said he didn't just stand out; he was outstanding. <laughs> we sort of, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Live TV is not always easy. But uh, interesting, you, you watch England a lot, Jacob, and I know none of us think that Southgate will pick Ross Barkley. But do you think he should at least give him a shot? He's given him a shot before. Um, and it's been a long time since he gave him a shot. I think it probably would have been pre-pandemic that Ross Barkley would have been in the England squad. Yeah, that that would have been when they were in the Euro qualifiers. So it's a long, long time ago. But he is playing a different role to to the one that he was playing back then when he was a number 10, really. And he's gone into this deeper role and it seems to suit him a lot more. The issue I always had with Ross Barkley wasn't that he had a lack of talent. You know, he got into at Chelsea, um, particularly in that first season under Lampard, he, he, he got into a couple of um, silly incidents off the pitch, which probably didn't really help his cause at all uh, for club or country. But I was just felt like with Barkley that there was just all this obvious talent and athleticism to him. And then he just wouldn't release the ball. And you'd just be so frustrated watching him because he knew that so much good had gone before it and then he'd just mess up the final pass. And at the top level, it it wouldn't, you know, that just wasn't acceptable. And there'd just be more efficient players who maybe didn't have the same level of ability as him, but were able to produce more. Now, he just looks calmer, which has really come out of nowhere because he for four or five years, he's done nothing. And um, he's got he's gone there and just looks more relaxed and playing in that deeper role. It, it seems to seems to suit him more. It's, it's brought out a different side to him. I don't think he's going to get an England squad. Um, I think it's all quite settled. I think Southgate has an idea of how he wants to play. Um, and there are probably others who would be further ahead of him. Um, maybe ones who've been in the under-21 setup. So people like Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott. But I do expect that when the squad comes in March and Ross Barkley isn't there, there'll be a lot of angry people. Um, and maybe he'll have some questions about it. It'll be interesting to hear what he says because he knows him well. He's he, he's he's wanted to play him in the past. I, I presume that was a, a Steinberg Junior um, <laughs> in the background, unless Barrius had a child without any of us without any of us knowing. That was number two being carted <laughs> off to nursery. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. I know he wants Ross Barkley in the squad. Well, of course, he's beginning the clamour. Uh, yeah. um, if um, if what? I had had a child, Max, it would be a well-behaved child. It would not be interrupting <laughs> oh, the recording of this podcast. Um, what what was your take on this game, Barry? It's quite hard to analyse a game with this many goals. Uh, look, it was great. Terrific entertainment. I presume both managers will have been disappointed with the outcome. But it's a brilliant point for Luton and they're on course to stay up at the, the rate they are. I'm not going to say hoovering up points, but uh, I think they've only lost one in their last nine in all competitions. That's not bad going for a team. Most people had written off as no hopers before the season started. They're visibly before our eyes. Well, obviously, it's before our eyes, but it's visibly, but improving every game. And they were a little naive and... At the start of the season, they were overwhelmed on occasions, but they're just getting better and better and better. As um, I think it was Troy said, they're, they're fearless and they're good. They're good. Uh, Newcastle, 
they've had a, a sticky patch on the road and now they're having a, a bit of a sticky patch at home. They've conceded 10 at home in their past three games. That's not good. And, you know, Dan Byrne, we know he's slow and, and a bit big and lumbering, but he, I think, should have been taken off, put out of his misery before, you know, I think he was on for 65 minutes. Making him sound um, like a horse at the Grand National. <laughs> Erect a screen around Dan Byrne. Put, put, put screens around, yeah, go and get the, the humane killer. Um, but, you know, I, I think Tino Livermento was available and he didn't come on for, yeah. But, so not brilliant management by Eddie Howe, I would argue, but uh, just a fantastic game, real, real good game. Imagine being the idiot who wrote, might even get naught points this season in the Guardian. <laughs> who would, yeah. who, who would, who would do that? I, I uh, wasn't going to bring that no, up again. No, no, no. <laughs> Troy, did you, did you have one final thought on this? Yeah, I thought Barry just made some really good points about House management of his own side. There was a, a distinct and obvious threat down the right hand side, and I was su- surprised to see Byrne probably come out for the second half, and then he gives away the penalty as well. They look so much better when, and I, I understand this about Harvey Barnes, who scored what I class as a controversial goal, but Livermento was available and probably would have dealt with the threat a lot better. Just spinning back to Barkley just a little bit, and I think it's the one thing that maybe um, holds him back. I'm not clamouring for, for him to be in the England squad, but you know, when you're playing at the top of your game and you are English, you have a right for someone from the management team to come and have a look at you to see if you're playing at that level. He got caught for the Harvey Barnes goal. As he does, he takes a little bit of time. He looks to to open play up. And a lot of the time he's playing his raking passes right and left, well, predominantly right-hand side. And he got caught. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Shah. Um, I thought it was a foul and it's ended up in the back of the net. And it's, it's probably about 20, 20 yards out. Because whilst taking the ball, they took Ross out. But this is something that he needs to tidy up a little bit as well when he is in and around his own 18-yard box. And then I think he he will... You know, he will improve his game again. But the clamour is not for him to be in the England squad, but the clamour is for him to be recognised. And if he's playing better than than certain people, then he deserves that and that alone. All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, We'll start part two at Stamford Bridge. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Chelsea 2, Wolves 4. Kim says, uh, can we have your analysis on how the emergence of the inverted fullback has influenced the use of the Metsala midfield role? Just kidding. Should Chelsea have strengthened in the summer? Rob says, do Chelsea need to sign another sandwich? Um, and Jacob, you were there. I mean, your report was, is the word excoriating? Is that the word? Uh, that's a word, yeah. That is a word. I mean, the way you, you know, and you saw the whole game, and you did start it correctly saying, before we go on to Chelsea, Wolves were brilliant in this game. So let's let's do them justice before we really get stuck into Chelsea again. Wolves and Gary O'Neill were brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Gary O'Neill, two seasons in a row, has taken over apparently hopeless situations and has turned both sides into very accomplished outfits. I mean, everybody thought when Lopetegui went and Neves had gone as well and the financial situation at Wolves appeared to be terrible that, this is only going one way. And they turned up on the opening day. Um, I don't think he'd been there very long at all, had he? And at Old Trafford and played them off the park and were very unlucky to lose. And probably the difference that day is that we, everybody came away going, wow, Cunha's like the best striker in the world until he has to score. And now six months on, 
going, wow, he looks like the best striker in the world, but he's also scored a hat-trick and they've won the game. So there's a bit of a difference there in just the ruthlessness that, that he's able to produce. And But just as a team overall, they just looked so comfortable. The back three were good. The wing-backs were um, caused Chelsea a lot of problems. I mean, like Nori uh, is, is there for the second goal. It's an own goal, but he, he's forced it. Um, the two midfielders who... <laughs> Lamina and um, Jao Gomez, who were up against you know the, the two hundred million pound midfielders, ran the game, and then you've got along with Cunha, you've got um, I mean Sarabia as well. I should say he was a clever player, but then you've got Neto, who is just one of those wingers who he, it looks like he's going to lose the ball, and then he just holds the marker off because he's strong, so that he can't get in that way, and then it looks like he's going to lose the ball, and he just gets out of it with quick feet. And he just takes his own time. He's just unplayable yesterday. And then the pace, and allied to the pace, the ability to produce the cutbacks for two of the goals. He is just an incredible player and changes it so much for them when he's fit. And Chelsea just did not react to it at all. It was obvious all game. You maybe don't get it on match of the day because they're focusing on, on other elements. But it was just obvious all afternoon that Wolves were just knocking these balls over the top in behind Ben Chilwell and getting Neto isolated against Thiago Silva, which was just a mismatch in terms of pace. You see it on the um, third goal and, you know, the second goal where he gets in behind, it was just coming all afternoon and it wasn't a surprise that, that it led to goals. What was a surprise, or maybe not given the way that they approached things, was that there was no reaction from Chelsea at all, no attempt by Pochettino apparently to stop what was happening down the right. It was very easy for Wolves to play the balls down there. Um, so no pressure from the wingers to or, or, or midfielders to stop it. Nobody kind of getting across to help Chilwell and stop this very obvious problem. And it, it turned a little bit hairy at the end because when they conceded the Thiago Silva goal, they kind of dropped off a little bit of 4-1 and Gary O'Neill had a little bit of a go at them for that. And then for, I don't know why, there were 10 minutes of added time at the end and it felt, oh my God, are they actually going to somehow rescue themselves here? It turned, it, it sort of gave the, um, suddenly gave the match a different feel because the, those 10 added minutes just make it feel a bit weird and suddenly everything turns really frantic and Wolves were suddenly defend, having to defend quite a lot. They'd taken off Neto at that point, but really it was a just a, it was a thrashing and a, a well-deserved one. And just Chelsea, just they've been on quite a good run at home. And when they scored the goal and went one nil up, felt okay. They they're going to settle down now. It just they just didn't. It just carried on making stupid mistakes and carried on not working hard enough. And the the way that they played yesterday really worry for Pochettino because it looked like they weren't a team who were following any kind of instructions, had any kind of identity or plan which has really been the way of it all all season. Um, and beyond how bad they were on the pitch, it felt a lot like the Southampton home game last season, which they lost when the fans in the East Lower, around the press box, really turned on the manager, Graham Potter, at the time. And yesterday it was similar. Fans really going for, for Poch, screaming at him, um, abuse that probably can't really repeat here. But... Um, Beyond that, what the owners will have heard, uh, the owners who uh, I think are breaking the football club at the moment, um, a chance for Abramovich, there were a chance for Jose, which I don't think are realistic, but that just sums up the mood. It's just, just turning 
Just I know. If you, if you think it's toxic, <laughs> think it's toxic now. Just uh, just give him <laughs> give, give him six weeks of working with Mudrick and Disassi, and then then you'll see what toxic really means. But it's just a shambles. The whole thing is a shambles, and the fans of it already feels like they're turning. I think what at the moment is probably what's delaying anything or, or, or keeping Poch in there at the moment is probably the fact that they're in a final. Yeah. Um. Tiago Silva's wife, Bella Silva, tweeted, it's time to change. If you wait any longer, it will be too late. Heart, heart. I, I don't know, Barry, if... She, I have no idea if she's referring to to Pochettino, to... I mean, it could be anything, couldn't it? She might but, want a different husband. Uh, <laughs> possible. That, that's what I took from it. I'm going to go on Hinge, see if she's there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's... Look, Jacob's covered it fairly thoroughly there. The thought that occurred to me watching this is I wonder if in a parallel sliding doors universe, Moyes Casado is in midfield for Arsenal playing really well and Declan Rice is, you know, bumbling around for Chelsea, giving the ball away repeatedly and massively failing to impress. But I don't really have much to add to what Jacob said. He he was there and... and He's he's pretty much covered it. The thing I got from Potter's post-match interview is that the, his level of contrition was so, well, contrite. You know, uh, it's difficult for me to ask for more time, more time, more time. Patience is not infinite. D- does he want to get fired? Maybe. Did you see um, a fan had DM Mudrick? And he offered him £10,000 to come and play a one-on-one game to prove that he was a better footballer than him. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny <laughs> at the end. Yeah. I think the text came after Wednesday's game, but he only replied after yesterday's game. So I don't know why he left it so long. But he offered him 10000 anyway. Was it straight up or amortised over, over eight and a half years? <laughs> That'd be the question, wouldn't it? Um, Matthias Cunha, the fourth player to score a hat-trick at Chelsea. Uh, in the Premier League after um, Aguero 2016, Van Persie 2011 and Carnu 1999. Was the Carnu one where he scored that one from that really, basically on the corner? Tight angle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah definitely. Was. Yeah. Um, to the Amex, Brighton 4, Palace 1. Surely, Troy, the end is nigh <sighs> for Roy Hodgson, isn't it? Apparently Steve Parrish is thinking about it, but but no oh, one oh. wants to take the job right now. That's what, that's what the rumours are. Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't come to me first on this one. Obviously, been to so many Brighton Palace games and know how much this game means to the fans and how the atmosphere is in, in you know, the, the, the game at, at, at Selhurst and then here. They were absolutely taken apart, weren't they? And I think you're right. The end is nigh for Roy. He looks like the manager, very much like Poch, after what Barry's just said there. And the whole thing around Michael Elise, I mean, if Roy ever threw anyone under the bus, he really did throw his medical. He said, if I'm going out, I'm taking my medical team with me. That's for sure. Um, Brighton were very good. I watched them Tuesday night, didn't I, at Luton, where uh, they had, they were horrendous. They were pretty much, from start to finish, absolutely horrendous. I also watched uh, Pedro walk out in a knee brace, um, very like on Tuesday night, looked like he couldn't walk and looked like he could be out for a very long time. So I was stunned that he started the game on Saturday. Uh, him, Lamptey, uh, Lamptey playing on the opposite side as a left wing back or, or even, you know, because Palace weren't doing much, advanced even further up the pitch. Lamptey was absolutely amazing and caused so many problems. But the goals were too easy. 
you know, the Dunk who, you know, Palace fans can't stand, but it would have stopped the songs about Dunk very early doors. Hinshelwood from A Lampty Cross. Pedro, you know, we talk about planning between the lines, and I'm sure we'll do that with Watkins again later, but Pedro was just anywhere and everywhere. Um, he's such a good player. I mean, the goal he, was brilliant from Pedro, the move with Welbeck, but I goal think was outstanding. Pedro. Yeah, goal was outstanding. But like I said, he was anonymous on, on Tuesday night. So it obviously had, you know, Deserby would have got into his players and told them the importance of the game, but also that they, he needed, they needed to replay the fans that, that went on Tuesday night. It was just a, a stunning performance and one that does leave, you know, Roy in very much difficulties. There were banners about Steve Parrish. So how long does he last after this? Um, a debut for Wharton that will be one not to remember for the young lad. It was, you know, but the whole talking point now is about what happened with Elise, why he came on at halftime and why in his first sprint that he, he'd done his hamstring again. But that shouldn't overshadow, should never overshadow the quality of Brighton's performance. Um, to Old Trafford then, Manchester United 3, West Ham 0. SC says, Beach Blonde seems to be popular in the United changing room currently. Has Barry ever frosted his tips? Have you ever had that, Barry? No, I haven't. Oh, still jet black hair. You could, uh, you could, you could do it now. Jet black, it's a dark brown. <laughs> um, th- that image, yeah. I mean, the- Gonacho's scored twice. Hoyland's goal was brilliant. That image, Baz, sort of feels, you know, the, the-, the two of them and... Uh, and Kobe Mainu sitting there feels kind of iconic. You're saying they're the future, Max. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, it just looks like a cool... It just was like Man United hasn't been no fun all season. No one's had fun anywhere. No players, no fans, nothing. Eric Ten Hag. And it's just like, oh, look, there are three young kids who are good at football having a nice time. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to be a Grinch here and say... As three nils go, it wasn't a hugely impressive three nil, but I expected, uh, and I I don't know what Jacob would have, might have expected as a West Ham fan, but I expected nothing from West Ham in this game because David Moyes' record, he's he, him and Stephen Bruce, it's just you know go to Old Trafford here, have three points, but yeah, Manchester United fans have had very little grounds for optimism of any kind this season, as you say, and that was a nice little celebration, nice picture. And some of the fans behind them will have a nice picture from you know of the backs of their shirts and remember the names, you know. Um yeah. feels like Troy that Hoyland goal is uh his first only the second player to score on his twenty first birthday in the Premier League after Noel Whelan in nineteen ninety five. But it feels like that's the first time I've seen him, and I might be doing him a disservice, taking a goal with just supreme confidence, like here is someone who just scores goals. That's the first it was just it was that good, I thought. Yeah, I thought it, I, I highlighted it as well. I must just point this out as well that a lot of people have, have, have I think, disrespected the, the ability of Casemiro and, you know, how much he's paid and whatever else. But he won a ball, he won the ball high up in the pitch, which will probably go unnoticed. Not here, it won't, Troy, because of you. That's why you're, <laughs> that's why you're a knight of the realm. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's the kind of nick that United haven't been doing because they haven't got the quality to do it. But yeah, let's focus on Hoyland. His confidence is growing, obviously, four in four. You can always tell a centre-forward's confidence when he turns down the strike on his stronger foot, the one that he's now pile-driving shots home. He sent two West Ham players the wrong way, shifted it to his right foot and confidently did the same kind of strike with his right. And 
I like the way celebrated as well. Is it supposed to be a guitar? I think it was, but it was just shows me where he is. And, and obviously it's, it's taken a very long time for him to settle. He's a young man. He's, he's at Manchester United who is supposed to be beating everybody. And he's the main guy. And I've heard a lot of people talk about he shouldn't be the main guy because he's not got enough experience. But I think what he's proven is that he's now adapting into the into the side, into the mould, into the Premier League. He's, he's now understanding what is required of him. And because of that, he's scoring goals. He's done it in the Champions League and four in four is nothing to sniff at. And if he's the only, if he's only the second uh, 21-year-old, I didn't know we kept stats like that, to be totally honest, but there you go. I have no idea where they found them. Noel Whelan would later go on to uh, impress on Celebrity MasterChef. So we can look forward to Rasmus Hoyland you know, serving up a... A Nordic feast. A jus to Jean Theroud and the other bloke in, in 20 years' time. Um. Uh, Jacob, everyone said that Calvin Phillips needs to play football to get in the Euro squad. Given, <laughs> given how playing football has gone for him so far, perhaps, I mean, not playing football would have given him a better chance. Yeah, it's not been a great start. Obviously, the um, horror moment against Bournemouth, although he was probably played into a lot of trouble by Kurt Zuma's pass, but then it happens again on on, on Sunday as well, where uh, for the third goal, getting done by Scott McTominay. So, yes, very much looks like a player who needs to get up to speed. Um, he, he looks like someone who's basically not played football for 18 months. So, so far, it's not gone to plan at all. They, they sort of played well, play, played probably better than they have than in some recent performances where they dug out some some results, missed chances, missed a really good one at 1-0. And they don't really have the, the firepower at the moment to be able to do that against Manchester United away and, and come away with anything and it just feels like they've needlessly made life difficult for themselves over January you know at the start of it they weren't really planning on doing anything then the Paqueta injury coupled with Bowen and and Kudus being away as well just suddenly exposed how limited the options in reserve were in particular Ben Rama, Fornals and um, and, and Danny Ings as, as well who had a decent performance against Sheffield United, but really hasn't done much. And so it felt like, okay, they, they need to replace these players, strengthen the squad options because they're very reliant on Paqueta. I think Bowen and Kudus are quite reliant on Paqueta for the for the creativity. And instead they've just gone and sold Fornals and Ben Rama after, uh, after almost, because of IT glitches apparently. Have they gone through those transfers, yeah? Those have happened. They've both gone. Okay. And, but instead they haven't, uh, despite having the, obviously their new technical director, Tim Steichen in, haven't been able to bring anybody in. So it just feels like a situation that, you know, where they're going into Christmas at six, in sixth place, beating United, beating Arsenal, it's the last 16 of the Europa League, just feels like they've suddenly just held themselves back for no particular reason. The one thing you might say is that it's possibly all FFP related. They have shifted some money off the wage bill while bringing in Calvin Phillips, which gives them now the ability to play four very slow central midfielders at once. The dream. That is the yeah. dream. David Moyes has now lost 239 Premier League games, more than any other Premier League manager. I mean, in his defence, he's managed quite a lot more Premier League games than most managers. Uh, he has nearly 700 games behind him. Worth mentioning that Sandro Martinez's injury looked pretty unfortunate, doesn't look great, and they are much better when, when he is playing. And I'm not sure we've done enough, Barry, on Kobe Mainu 
yet. I mean, there is time. He is young. He is young, and, and we have a lot of games to get through. <laughs> yeah, we do. So, look, Kobe, hold it. We will talk about you. Don't worry. To Bramall Lane, Joseph says, do you think the Aston Villa players were aware what they were doing in front of a Premier League manager? Yes, uh, um, they were 4-0 up after half an hour. Uh, beat Sheffield United 5-0. Sheffield United even scored, and, and it was disallowed off this incredible VAR check. And I can't remember who was on comms. Just sort of went, oh, well done. Like really patronising when they finally scored. So this, Barry, is Villa were really brilliant. That Douglas Luiz pass for the second was so wonderful. and But they weren't really playing much. They were brilliant. And you can only be brilliant against whatever is in front of you. And Sheffield United could not have been more accommodating despite being at home. We know they're not very good. We know they're probably going to get relegated on the evidence of this. They'll be rele- relegated sooner rather than later and you know it was just a, a chance for Villa to rebuild their confidence uh, Ollie Watkins had three assists and a goal Douglas Louise was imperious and as you say that pass for the, the second one the and it, I was doing the minute by minute report I got to use one of my favourite phrases an insouciant swish with the outside of his right boot and uh, completely bamboozled Ahmed Hodzic who who just more or less tripped over his own feet trying to deal with the the ball through. Sheffield United fans were furious. Loads started leaving at 2-0. Loads more started leaving at 3-0. And by the time they scored, they actually rallied a little bit towards the end when it was far too late. Um, After Chris Wilder brought on some subs, uh, Cameron Archer, Ben Osborne, and... I think the most remarkable thing about the Sheffield United performance was the fact that I'd completely forgotten about the existence of former Everton midfielder Tom Davis, but he came on for his first appearance since being out injured in September or late August, and he's shorn his long blonde locks and replaced oh, them he? with a buzz cut with a, a go faster stripe that you know of the kind David Beckham used to have. So uh, well done him. Oh, good. Um, uh, Johnny says, on the subject of Chris Wilder and sandwich eating, one very hot summer's day in my old job, all office employees were offered free ice cream from the canteen. So after lunch, I returned to my desk eating a Cornetto when a senior manager appeared at my desk and started grilling me on an upcoming product launch. This scenario presented me with three bad options. Continue to eat the Cornetto in the presence of the senior manager. Not eat the Cornetto, but have it melt over my hands mid-conversation. Put the Cornetto down on my desk for it to melt all over my things. I can't honestly remember what happened. I think I probably got away with holding it and not eating it, but I feel a sense of solidarity with that assistant referee. Uh, Anyway, before we end part two, we, not me and Barry and friends, uh, The Guardian, would like all of your money. We are not funded by a nation state or a billionaire or a hedge funder. We're we're good, honest stock. But we we live in hope. (laughs) (laughs) We live in hope and on hope. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Uh, We do know that not everyone can afford to pay for the news right now. If you can, please support us to sustain The Guardian's future. Consider supporting The Guardian. It's going to be a big year for football. The Guardian will be here covering it all. Uh, Every contribution, however big or small, powers our journalism and sustains our future. You literally power Barry uh, with your money. If you could please follow the link in the description uh, on the webpage uh, or go to support.theguardian.com. And we'll be back in a second. (laughs) 
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, to Goodison, then Everton two, Spurs two. Um, Everton grabbing a point uh, in the fourth minute of injury time. Definitely deserved it. A couple of interesting points in this game. Uh, Richarlison's non-celebration, Troy, was extraordinary, wasn't it? But the second one, he looked bereft. I don't I mean he looked... He looked utterly devastated. We had Tottenham fans te- texting the radio show, me and Barry, yesterday saying, we thought the first one had been disallowed. That was how <laughs> muted his celebration was. Listen, it's his third goal against Everton this season, so he, I'm not sure he should be worried about celebrating. But Richarlison's a very emotional footballer. You know, having witnessed him play for Everton and the emotion and the roller coaster that that was at the time that we were there. Um, I mean, you didn't get a chance to see him celebrate much then, I guess, did you? <clears throat> Wow. Anyway, we'll ignore that and then we'll move on. Um, no, he, look, it, I get it when players don't, you know, Everton served him well. They bought him from Watford. He scored bundles of goals for them. You know, he was sold basically because of financial reasons, although I think he, he wanted the move anyway to get out at the right time. And scoring at Goodison Park, you know, the way that he scored as well, the, the, the early nature of the goal, probably, probably. You know, he wanted to at least say to them, look, like, you know, I'm sorry almost. But by the second one, like you said, the fact that he pulled his shirt over the top of his head and he was like almost hiding, like that wasn't me that put the ball in the back of the net. Look, it, like I said, I, I don't hold anything against players who, who score goals and, and don't celebrate against former employees, having witnessed my own son do it in the past. So I'm not going to have a knock at Richardson for sure. Two great strikes, by the way, and two great strikes yeah. that show that you know, nine in nine, uh, again, as a striker in top form and where he's been questioned quite a lot about putting the ball in the back of the net. He's doing it on a consistent basis. Son's away. He stepped up. He scored goals. You can't do no more than that. And, you know, good on him. Baz? Yeah, the two really good goals. I mean, the whole non-celebration thing is performative nonsense by everyone involved. Um, he should be shoving it right up them and they should be flipping him the bird and effing and jeffing him out of it. It's football. That's how it should be. But um, Spurs will see this game as, as two points dropped. I thought Everton probably deserved a draw. They weren't, weren't as good as Spurs but they worked hard and they huffed and puffed and they hoid crosses into the box and Targeted Vicario, who, who like in the City Cup game, um, was bullied at corners and it eventually cost Spurs. I don't know why I said to you yesterday, Max, I think we need Graham or Howard Paul. No, Howard, Graham. Howard Paul. <laughs> Howard Webb. <laughs> okay. we, start cloning, we start cloning referees to build yeah. the ultimate referee. All we want is consistency. Yeah. So here is yeah. Pierre-Luigi Hackett. And he will do the job for you. Well, we need Pierre-Luigi Hackett or someone else to come out and tell us whether or not it is legal for a defender to back into a goalkeeper at a corner. Because I don't know whether it is or not. Some referees seem to think it is, others seem to think it isn't. So a bit of clarification would be nice. I'm sure Vicario would like some because he seems to be the one goalkeeper out of all of them in the Premier League that everyone has decided can't cope. So Spurs need, you know, they needed to deal with that. They needed to put a defender between him and whoever was uh, bullying him at any given time. And yeah, Spurs, they've now dropped 18 points from winning positions. I think we used to be praising them. There was a time this season we praised them for 
getting goals late doors and now now they just seem to be conceding goals and chances late doors and something they need to sort out yeah they've let in eight goals uh, in injury time this season i guess isn't as bad as conceding eight goals in injury time in previous seasons when there wasn't so much injury time but on that um question about vicari had a couple of questions uh, Beza says is Postacoglu right when he says refs are letting things go and waiting for VAR to intervene? As VAR only intervenes on clear and obvious errors, smaller errors are becoming more frequent. Whereas Peter says, has the veil fallen from our Postacoglu-friendly eyes as we now realise he's actually quite grumpy and condescending when he fails to fix a weakness in his team's defending of set pieces and the other team rudely takes advantage? Uh, what do you think, Jacob? I think the first point is, is interesting. Uh, I mean, the... What, what I found interesting was in the, the, the Bristol City-West Ham Cup game, the replay, where there was no VAR, and it was a Premier League referee who'd come down to do the game, and it looked like he didn't know how to do it without the technology there. So there were a lot of challenges that just went, and and it was almost like he was thinking, well, um, that leg breaker can can take place, and, I, and I'll wait for someone in my ear to tell me that there's that, that something I should stop the game and, and, and I need to go and check the screen but actually nobody was doing that because there was it was just a normal game and so I felt like that was a little indication of how um, it looks to me like they're, they're not able sometimes to make the, their own decisions now because of that safety blanket of, of having somebody always there to tell them um, you, you might want to go and, and, and check with, check on that one so so yeah I think it's it's, it's quite possible that they're starting to miss things simply by not taking action. And yeah, um, on Ange, she's probably just a football manager who's who's annoyed. He's he's not the nicest man in the world and he's, he's not the um, grumpiest either. He's just annoyed that they didn't get the rub of the green. Not getting into that one. Yeah, <laughs> Burnley 2, Fulham 2. Simon says, given Chelsea's need for a finisher, why don't they take a look at signing Burnley's David Datro Fafana in the transfer window? He looks like just the sort of player they need. Of course, he's on loan from Chelsea. I think it's easier now to, to presume that every player plays for Chelsea or is on loan from Chelsea. Yeah, Chelsea have this, they've got this ridiculous thing now outside the um, outside the ground where you can, I think it's called the dugout club or something or the tunnel club. I think it's the dugout club. And it's when the, the, the team turns up and they get off the bus and there's someone with a microphone outside sort of introducing the players and you get to see them coming in. But you, you have to sort of have earned the right to be there to, to see this happen. And like yesterday, it was the guy was going like, welcome off the bus, David Washington. He's like, who are these people who are... <laughs> he wasn't even on the bench. And, like, and they're getting up. And, and at Stamford Bridge, you know, there's, there's like the posters and everything. It's like of old players and it's like Diego Costa and Didier Drogba and John Terry and they're lifting Premier League titles and Champions Leagues and it's like welcome back Cesare Cassidy it's like who are these people <laughs> who David Washington wasn't even on the bench yesterday oh was that a real and, person I just presume you'd yeah. made up a name like, <laughs> paid 17 million pounds for this guy for this guy and he's played like one game uh, it's just unbelievable and then yeah wow. For Fana, they paid they paid money for him as well. Maybe maybe David Washington was driving the bus. <laughs> <laughs> We've got for a snip a bus driver for a seventeen. He was doing replacement bus for West Anglia Great Northern, and we've got him in for seventeen million. What well on Todd? Um, I don't know how Fulham didn't win this game, Troy, um, but they didn't. 
uh, yeah, I, I really don't know. Honestly, they were coasting. It was it was as easy a game as I think they could have imagined away from home, particularly as Burnley had beaten them at, at Craven Cottage previously. So it's very, very hard to explain. They could have gone 3-0 up just before, um, I think, Fafana came on and then Fafana comes on and Burnley all of a sudden have a target to hit in and around the box. He caused mayhem. He's a great-headed goal for the first one, if, if I'm right. Yeah. Yeah, Burnt Leno. I'm not sure what where Burnt Leno was going. Yeah, I don't know what he was doing there. And then, and then that's it. And then they're at Fulham and the game changes its whole kind of look. And I don't even know how the second one went in. But, you know, if there's ever going to be a bit of luck, it was at that moment that was needed. Um, two have gone in for a tackle. It's hit the back of his, I don't know, it's hit his foot, the other side of it, but it's gone in the back of the net. It's the kind of luck that you need when you're in positions like that. And, um, you know, he's got his two goals. He looks like a threat. He's obviously someone that Burnley can probably now utilise. There's still a good lot of points for them to make up, but he's given them half a chance by taking a point. But Fulham, I don't know how they've thrown that game. Two mistakes, two goals. It's a funny old game, isn't it? Um, Barry, uh, your thoughts on Bournemouth 1, Forest 1? Uh, I don't have many thoughts on it, to be honest. All I saw was the highlights package. Uh, on the strength of that, it seemed like a pretty fair result. Callum hudson Adoy wants a great big prospect at Chelsea, who's now sort of in and out with the Forest team, got a good goal. And then I suppose the main talking point of the game was Philip Billings' red card for what I thought at first sight was a fairly innocuous challenge. I was slightly surprised when Rebecca Welsh produced the red card and then seeing it in the replay, it was a nasty little challenge. I'd, I'd like to think it wasn't deliberate, but maybe it was, but um, just a stamp, a rake down his Achilles, which really hurt him and, and forced him off. Um, but that that is all... Uh, the, the sum total of my thoughts on that game. Um, just time for a bit of any other business. Um, um, we've covered uh, Gareth Southgate going to watch Henderson. Eric did ask, is his obsession bizarre, weird or creepy? Uh, there was an interesting tweet from someone called Max Bollard saying, 18 English players featuring Newcastle Luton, 12 in Everton Spurs, 10 in Brighton Palace, 5 in Burnley Fulham, 12 in Sheffield United Villa. And Gareth Southgate has travelled to watch Jordan Henderson play for Ajax. Max said, pathetic. I think that was not so much Gareth Southgate wanting to see Jordan Henderson make his debut for Ajax, but Gareth Southgate more or less saying, this guy's in my plans and I don't care what the rest of you think. So, you know, nah, nah, nah. I think you might be right. Ian says, niche this, bear with. Blackburn Rovers have failed to register correctly their third player in the last two January transfer windows. When have the panel similarly been hamstrung in pursuing their sporting endeavours by basic administrative incompetence? Um... Uh, yes, that is slightly unfortunate. Mark says, I went to watch Eastley versus Chesterfield in the National League. My friend had two short comfort breaks in each half and we left with a minute to go. He missed all four goals. Is this a record? <laughs> uh, Colin writes, hi, Max. At 36 minutes and 20 seconds on Monday's pod, Barry stated, and I quote, I think non-league players are all excellent footballers. As a long-suffering Boston United fan, I'd like to strongly and disrespectfully take issue with the statement. <laughs> Some of them are just shit, he says. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, here, 
Uh, this is from Keith, uh, finally. He says, hi, Max and the gang. Down the years, many Football Weekly listeners have used the pod to soundtrack various procedures being done. Now I propose to up the ante by listening to Monday's pod on Tuesday the 6th of February while I have my hip replaced. I was going to have full sedation, but I fancy having Barry's throaty laugh or a random swear word being dropped in my ears as the surgeon drills away at me. I might regret this. No to... Uh, saying no to full sedation, not listening to the pod, but it'll be an experience if nothing else. Uh, love the show. Keep up the great work. Keith in Haddington. Well, we wish you the best of luck. We're an hour in, Keith, so I don't know how long a hip replacement takes, but hopefully you're not regretting it right now and you, you didn't have general anaesthetic, but God, a hip replacement. Well, well, oh, I, no. I don't... I know someone who had a hip replacement. I, I always assumed they'd cut you open, saw off the big ball thing at the top and then replace it with titanium. Yeah. I, I once, in the company of Ian Wright and Ray Wilkins, name drop, name drop, they were having a great chat about their respective hip... Or no, Ray Wilkins had had one and Ian Wright needed to have one. And Ray right. couldn't recommend a ceramic hip highly enough so right i i hope our listener is getting a ceramic hip but apparently it's all done keyhole i don't know how but it is or the one i heard about was so oh, uh, so like keith has nothing to worry about just well maybe he's up. doing it he's going old school just biting down <laughs> on a bit of leather while some <laughs> victorian surgeon sets about him with a saw and, and a, a leech. Spike. <laughs> <laughs> all right fair enough well best of luck to you keith and best of luck to everyone else who isn't having their hip replaced currently while listening to this. Uh, and that'll do for today. Thanks, Troy. Thank you, Max. Uh, thank you, Jacob. Nice to have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Baz. Thanks, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Max Sardison. This is The Guardian.